Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, friends. I hope you are just having, I think, good thoughts about the summer, I want to (laughs) say. I know summer can be a hectic time, whether you have childcare or not. I'm kind of in that boat of my kid not being in school and how am I going to do it? And I know a lot of families feel that way. And, you know, there's always this pull of, well, there's always summer camps you can, but like, it's not always affordable. So I hope you've figured out a plan for how you can, you know, manage your own sanity over the summer, but also have some fun with your kids as well. Um, Cause we are on the brink of summer. Absolutely. I think I was telling Amanda this the other day, we've been talking about school years in general since 2020 and how hard they've been. And I feel like we didn't really talk about that before, but it just been such a shift in so many ways due to the pandemic. And then also this kind of paradigm or, you know, perspective that we would hope the pandemic would have shifted didn't. And that's just really frustrating. And we are really excited today to have Laura Adams. I'm just going to get right into it, Laura, because this is an area that we, you know, there are so many people that we as attorneys, you know, see on, you know, during IEP team meetings that we, you know, talk to outside of IEP meetings. And Laura is here today to really talk about one area that we know exists and that Amanda and I personally deal with in terms of our status as 317 E attorneys with children that are in the delinquency in juvenile hall or in dependency foster care. So sometimes we'll get their social workers information and things like that. But specifically, we'll be talking about social workers on the school campus. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. So yeah, you know, social work is really, I feel like we're at the forefront of a real movement here that it's really right now a medical care system being run on good faith alone. So just to give you a little background of myself, I'm the mom of four beautiful, amazing girls, mm. 13 to 16, I'm including two adopted from China. My husband and I affectionately call them batch one and batch two. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm the founder of Facts for Safe Families. Our mission mm-hmm. is to transform the future for adoptive and foster children. Facts stands for Foster and Adopted Children Teaching Supports. I came into it and built really my organization based on my own personal family experience. As you might know, you know, raising any child, especially when to get to the teenage years can be, you know, sometimes difficult or challenging. But when you have adopted and foster children who've had attachment trauma, Mm -hmm. complex neurobehavioral, you know, trauma, you know, we become almost detectives as adoptive and foster parents to try to figure out what our children best need. And we really rely on our village to take care of our child. I mean, you know, we've worked with OTs, PTs, physicians, you know, neuropsychs, 
tutors, whatever your mm-hmm. child you try mm-hmm. to do. So you really count on your outside treatment professionals, and that includes, you know, school social workers. But yeah. our world was turned really upside down. I went in for an academic meeting that I initiated with my child's school social work team to address concerns. Mm. And yeah. in that meeting, I learned instead that they called DCFS on me. Stop it. Wow. I'm and, and not so kidding you. DCFS is an acronym for the, you know, child, you um, know, protective services. And yes. so you, you're going into this meeting thinking it's one thing and they just yes. casually reveal that they've called DCFS on you. Completely. I, as far as Stop. I was concerned, I was in a bad movie and I had just woken up in some, <gasps> someone else's life, you know, right? totally thrown off. They accused me of being an emotionally abusive mother <gasps> to controlling and unsafe for my child to go home with. Now, mind you, I have, an, wow. or I have another child at that school. Driving perfectly fine. They weren't concerned about that child. She was <gasps> in. So, I mean, the whole thing just didn't make sense, right? And absolutely not. And instead of somebody taking a beat and like acknowledging, oh, but the other child's fine. And instead of having a conversation with you about it, they to go to that extreme is wild to me. Oh my goodness, Laura. Especially when we were in communication and, right, um, you know, it's crazy, you know, anyways, the luckily for, you know, in my case, the DCFS agent called me from the school. I was still in the parking lot because I was calling all of our outside treatment professionals. They were saying, (sighs) this is what's going on. This is not normal. Right. He, the DCFS agent, once he learned that I already had an outside support team of professionals, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had requested the meeting. I have another child at school thriving. He just said, I don't even know why I'm here. So, <gasps> and, you know, I just really, I agonized with this for so long, for so many reasons, because, you know, I had always been a loving, caring, advocating parent for mm-hmm. my child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't my first rodeo. I've already raised two girls and we wanted to get to the bottom of it. So we hired an education lawyer to start the IEP process for our daughter. And in that, we found out that the social worker had advised teachers that they should not share concerns with us because there were, (gasps) quote, complex family dynamics, unquote, at home. So we, it was terrifying and heartbreaking. The fact that right. the, the narrative of our family was so mm-hmm. misconstrued that mm-hmm. it was reinforced in my daughter who, you yep. know, already had attachment issues and mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. reinforced her thinking, right? Her maladaptive coping skills, you know, and I just started wondering if this could happen to us, who else could it happen to? And I want to prevent that you know, happening from any family in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something that we see quite often with, you know, we've had a number of cases, kids have been adopted and they do have their own sets of challenges where we're going through the IEP process. And there are assumptions a lot of times that, oh, this is happening. Or even with kids who have maladaptive behaviors or their self-injurious behaviors, the amount of times these families get called DCFS on them is a lot because there are these assumptions made that, it's got to be something wrong at home rather than let's look at this child and like what their needs are. And, you know, we see it kind of on the same lens when we deal with like discipline issues where like the police department or, you know, school resource officers are called. It's kind of that same dynamic 
for our listeners, let's take a step back for a second and talk a little bit about what school social workers are, because I think we talked about this before we got on the pod, but like many school districts that we work with do not have, or they're not regularly use school social workers. So let's Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what school social workers are and how they're different from like, maybe the social worker that we might get called for DCSFS. Do you have like any definitions for our listeners about kind of the difference between a school social worker and what we normally think of as a social worker? Sure. So an outside treatment professional, which we had, those are private therapists, you know, they're Mm -hmm. working with our children, their mood disorders, they have, you know, a lot more information on the family. And the big thing is that there's oversight, and there's a standard of care with those uh, outside treatment professionals, school, so or a social worker in a clinic or a hospital has standard of care to meet, they have outside government agencies, joint commissions coming in to make sure they're following best practices. There is not that in a school. A school social worker will get their social worker license from, in Illinois, it's the Illinois Department of Financial Professional Regulation, but a similar organization exists in California and in all states Mm -hmm. where they would get their license to practice. But that particular agency has no oversight within a school to come in, to check, to do anything. That oversight is by the State Board of Education, but the State Board of Education only oversees teachers, not school social workers. So there's this big black hole of Mm -hmm. nobody checking to see if school social work departments are following best practices. Right now, really, it can be interpreted in many different ways. Ideally, a school social worker is there to provide academic support for the child, anything that the child would need to be successful in school. The problem has been, um, and I think California is very similar to Illinois in that it's very progressive. They want to provide social work services for kids. We all see the, you know, headlines for mental health crises, and they want Mm -hmm. to open up access for more school social work. Well, that may be great and a good goal, but if right. we don't have oversight, if there's no mm-hmm. conditions of care or monitoring, then literally we're running a whole medical system on good faith alone. And- well, it's interesting here in California. So I dug a little deeper into this mm-hmm. in preparation for today because, you know, we normally don't see uh, school social workers in majority of our cases. It's not something that's regularly seen. In Los Angeles Unified, it's more prevalent, but in most of the other school districts, it's not. And so I had pulled up up a couple of definitions for our listeners. And it's interesting because there's the School Social Work Association of America has a definition of what school social workers are. And it specifically says that they're trained medical mental health professionals with a degree in social work who provide services related to a person's social, emotional, and life adjustment mm-hmm. to school and our society. However, as you were mentioning, the oversight is very kind of different than that in many states because like California, you're right, it's governed by the Department of Education because school social workers in California are hired directly from the school district. So they are employees of the school district. They're not Mm -hmm. the same as social workers from the state. And interestingly enough, the California Commission on Teaching Credentials who outlines like teacher credentialing across the board in California, but also on school social workers, Like the requirements to be a school social worker is very different than an actual social worker, where a master's degree in social work is generally required versus 
a school social worker in California only requires a bachelor's degree and then specific training in social work. So just that, that difference of if you have a bachelor's degree in social work and you have some specific training and there's like the internship requirements that does not make you a mental health professional mm-hmm. in itself. And so if, if you are going, and we all know that many school districts hire people who are bare minimum requirements so that they can pay them the bare minimum, right? Mm-hmm. That is not a mental health professional. And so the expectation of they're supposed to be providing mental health services, which I don't know if that's a correlation to why we're not seeing these providers as much in many of our districts. We like in many cases that I get involved in, like I actually just have a case right now where I asked the school district to refer a student to the Department of Mental Health for an evaluation because this is a student who likely needs a residential treatment facility and appropriate assessment hasn't been conducted. And so mm-hmm. in the cases where I've seen the Department of Mental Health get involved, that's where more success occurs than, say, looking at a school social worker who doesn't actually have mental health training. So a couple of things on what you just said. So a lot of cases I find are in the shadows. Um, mm. There are lots of parents that have issues with school social workers, run into problems. The problem mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not something you really want to bring attention to. It's your child's mental health care, uh, stigma, yeah. private medical history. Mm-hmm. No one wants that kind of attention on their family. Mm-hmm. It becomes a parent's word against a social worker's word. They have complete in their professional opinion is all they have to say. It's almost impossible to find a social worker, you know, in like a a case of, let's say, malpractice that you could in a doctor setting. It's a very gray, you know, mental health cases are never black and white. They're gray, they're messy, especially like our kids with attachment issues, adopted foster kids, you know, their Mm -hmm. brains are rewired and Mm -hmm. they don't understand what they're seeing. You know, their emotions and behaviors come out as hypervigilance, wanting uh, complete independence, having a negative worldview. But what our organization is trying to, you know, dispel is that it is not the parent's fault. It is what happened to that child prior to us getting them that caused the behaviors and the emotions that they're seeing. So, you know, a school social worker only sees one part of the picture. Now let's Mm. even go into what you were saying, the mental health care professional. So we have LCSWs in our school district. Those are mental health care professionals. And the key phrase out of that is mental health care. It is health care. It's the health care being done in schools, you know, with unlimited access to our children with no parameters and no oversight. And, you know, you mentioned what is the definition If you look at any state or any even school district, they will interpret it differently. There is no decision on that. That is the number one question our whole country has not decided. What should Mm -hmm. mental health care look like in a school Mm -hmm. setting? Until Mm -hmm. they answer that, these social work departments can literally do whatever they want, you know, and parents need to be part of the picture. While they may have expert, you know, certainly they've gone through school, they've taken their exams, they have advice and expertise that way, but we are the parent who lives with the child. So often children with complex neurobehaviors, they, you know, can 
act one way in school and one way at home. And the parent sees the child struggling and trying to, you know, complete work and they're overseeing it. And the school just doesn't see that picture. So it's not easy to make diagnoses, especially if they are the sole judge and jury of what is going on with our child as in, you know, our case. So that is really my organizations. We are, you know, looking at developing um, professional development training for social workers and uh, teachers. There's all this new brain science that's come out about attachment and how it's Mm going to show up. And the importance, so here's where it really goes off the rails for adoptive and foster kids. And by the way, in our state, there's probably 50,000 adopted and foster kids. I think in the nation, I think my last figure I checked was there's 4 million kids who are adopted foster or who have special needs. So there's 4 million kids that are really at risk here. And with adopted and foster kids, they if you don't support the attachment of the adoptive and foster child, if you're driving a wedge between a child and a parent, you are actually causing harm to the child because the way the child heals their attachment wounds is through the relationship with the parent. So, you know, the fact that, you know, when I look at my case and I think, oh my gosh, you know, for my daughter, for even one minute to think that, I wasn't a loving or caring parent and not have that narrative given to her. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. makes me, you know, it just brings me to my knees. And, you know, that's really what we're trying to accomplish here is let's look at the way brain science is let's really put it into practice as we're giving these school social workers more and more responsibilities. And as you said, they are, you know, they don't know everything and it, you know, they can have different knowledge bases for sure, but to exclude the parents who are really the experts on their children is just not a good system. You know, right now, social work departments, you can find variants. We have 850 school districts in Illinois and 2 million children, and each one will have a different interpretation as to what the best practices are. In our district, uh, documentation was only taken on kids with IEPs. Well, my daughter has a 504. So Mm. we received no documentation of three years of visits for my child with the social worker. We knew she was going to see her for academic check-ins, but we had no, we still don't know the extent that she saw her. We don't have dates, times, length of visits, nothing. So, you know, that's just a loophole that has to be closed. I mean, documentation to me, I was a reading instructor in the schools and I would keep documentation if I right to right. a parent about something. You know, that just mm-hmm. seems to be mm-hmm. the very basis So, you know, there's a lot that way. In our state, we've just gone now. So there's in every state, there's amount of time that a social worker is supposed to be able to meet with a child without consent or notification to a parent. Um, So for instance, we lived in Texas and in Texas, it was 
two times for 20 minutes. And the reason they have these types of laws in place is in case a child is being physically abused, they want to be able to identify that. I totally agree with that. In our state, which is a little more progressive, the law was nine, eight times for 90 minutes. That was the limit that you could meet with a child without getting further consent from a parent. Now our state has rolled it into 12 hours, 12 hours of time without a parent being notified or have consent to it. Well, if you have an adopted child, a foster child, you know, who's presenting these types of things, we are opening up, you know, to me, you can't put forth more access without Mm. more accountability. It just isn't going to work out. I don't believe the outcomes will be successful. It's certainly. Well, and then there's just like different lived experiences. Yours is one, right? right? Where this loophole is looking us straight in the face and just completely awful. You know, I'm sure they came up with 12 for a reason. Maybe they're just looking at the opposite cases, right? But Mm -hmm. to be able to have so much, and you know, if I'm a social worker, I have my degree, I have all this, you know, I'm sure they're taught there is some structure, but because it's so different, from even it sounds like school to school, not just state to state, but just probably within the state, just so different. And that's, I think what Amanda was kind of alluding to in that, you know, even within Los Angeles Unified School District, you know, social workers and how that, you know, I've had some at IEP meetings, I've had some not at IEP meetings, right? I think it's one of those situations where more of these lived experiences need to be stated, right, so Mm -hmm. that we can come together and have the input from the social workers, from the school district, from the parents, because otherwise we're just kind of swimming (laughs) without a paddle, right? We're up a creek without a paddle. What are some things as we kind of close that parents, that you encourage parents or school boards, anybody listening that that wants to learn more information or really help in um, creating a better way of doing things? Yeah. So right now, the way the system is set up is that really school boards are the ones who are, and parents are supposed to be the ones overseen to make sure that school social work departments mm-hmm. are following best ethics practices. So mm-hmm. I would encourage every parent to read the best ethics practice guide. It's put out by your state board of ed. And the reason it's important is because even if you think your child is not seeing a social worker, they might be because you might not know. The other thing about that is they do have access to all children. It's not just children on IEPs and 504. Right, right. Um, You know, and so it's important for you to know what those best practices are and then to go to your school or school board and find out what are the practices in the school? What are the policies? At our school, they had, that was an accepted policy that social workers could advise teachers not to talk to parents about their children's academic struggles. And that's not for, you know, to have a professional who meets alone in a room with a child and Mm. can have the ability to cut off a parent is just a safe practice. So, you know, None of us knew this, you know, until we started digging into it and to know what to do about it. You know, we need to know what the training of our school social workers are. If you get any, you know, on a school website, there is very little, if any, data given much more mm-hmm. than the name and their email. We right, don't know right. what their 
screening is, you know, mm-hmm. to be an adoption specialist and LCSW is certainly you have your license and you can treat, but you know, there's additional training that you would want someone to have to be able to work with an adopted child. Yeah. Well, I think it all bottles down to, you know, one of the things we always say with kids on IEPs and 504 plans is that things should be individualized. And so even though we may have general standards for the general education population, which it's primarily what these rules are, they need to be modified for kids who have special circumstances. And in many cases and all across the board, it's not happening that way. And that's really the root of it is that all aspects of education for kids who have you know, special circumstances, whether it is that they're adopted, they're in foster care, they have an IEP, by the four plan, there should be special considerations. And we're still not where we should be on that all across the board. Unfortunately, that's why we, our jobs exist, you know, but I think it is important to highlight these things, especially these special nuances. So we thank you so much for coming on the pod and, and sharing with our audience. If anyone is looking to get more information from you or connect, what's the best way they can do that? Sure. So they can go to our website. It's factsforsafefamilies.com. They can reach me at factsforsafefamilies at gmail.com. You know, you're right. I certainly appreciate you having me on. The mental health care of our kids is so important and it's just too important not to get it right in the schools. So I really appreciate you letting me come and, and talk about it. I mean, we've had a lot of different mental health professionals come on and I think that your perspective as a parent and you and the work that you're doing and just like shedding light to something that, you know, we've tiptoed around was just eye opening. So thank you so much. Thank you. you. I appreciate it. I love all the work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All All right, right, listeners. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.